Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're probably at like two, coming up on two and a half years now. Originally, we were recording video with the episode two. Because mm-hmm. I thought um, it might be good to just have it on YouTube with a video in case anyone wants to watch. And I thought about, like, who the hell wants to watch us sitting and talking? <laughs> yeah, we did away with that pretty quickly. And I think it was the right choice. Yeah, it would have just been, like, so much, like, useless footage, too. Like, some stuff I could yeah. never do anything with. So I want to, like, have a bunch yeah, totally. of, you know, footage of us sitting <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's a lot more work to like, uh, even for us to record, but especially for you on your end, like you were um, chopping up the audio of this and then you had to go do an entire video. When you did that, I'm actually curious, did you cut the audio to match the video or were they, was there less editing in the video kind of thing? Because I've never watched or listened to any of these. No, it, it's, it was synced from the very beginning so any cuts i would make would just work on the video and the audio so once once i was done i'd export a video and then i'd do just an audio export so it would be exactly the same so that's good but either way happy two and a half ish years film craft listeners and latif savor it because it's not gonna last forever (laughs) No, it will last forever, Latif. Through this podcast, we are going to achieve immortality. I guess. <laughs> you know, actually, there's one for you. This is a bit of a, you know, we're at, at, I don't know, a couple minutes in here and we haven't talked about anything film related. But if you had the choice, would you become immortal? No. No, I wouldn't either. That sounds fucking horrible. I don't know why people want that. I don't think anyone really knows the implications of what it what it would be like to be immortal. So I don't think anyone really wants it everyone just thinks that you'll be able to live forever and only good things happen to you yeah yeah yeah, i agree all right well doing a complete 180 what are we talking about this week latif uh i just finished shooting a short film and you know i did it on a very very low budget with a very small crew um just because it felt like that was the right way to do it this time yeah, and that was very intentional on your part. Like, you wanted to try to minimize the crew as much as possible. Yeah, well, I think that's... I, I'm always trying to do that just in general, regardless of the project. Like, I prefer to have less people on set and less extra bodies and equipment and stuff if it's possible, so... Yeah, so um, give them a rundown. What did you have on set? Who'd you have actors, crew, the whole nine? Well, I think I joked about this, like... You know, many episodes ago, where I said, ideally, I'd like to just make a film with me and the actor. <laughs> and I and I got pretty close. It was just me, the actors, and then a sound guy and a makeup artist, um, which was helpful. But it was a three-person crew, technically, and then actors, because I was operating the camera and working with the actors. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of doing that, like, very run-and-gun shooting style um but you know not not like going for that look i wasn't looking for like a handheld documentary kind of look like i want it to look like a normal film but just really take my time and shoot it so we had like very short shooting days you know four four and a half hours at most in the day we shot most of it starting at like five ish and then would end around eight nine o'clock so it's very, very minimal. 
pretty easy stuff, but at the same time, it was actually very challenging because there were no other crews. So I had to do everything myself, and you know, actors were slating <laughs> um, <laughs> for their own scenes and stuff. And they didn't mind. I think they all kind of enjoyed it, but at the same time, um, in my head, everything was just like nuts. Like I, th- I was like, this is a disaster. And in, in reality, <laughs> it wasn't bad at all. It was probably the most relaxed set. All the crew and the actors kind of like very chilled out. Um, so I think it's just a little more pressure on myself, but all in all, it doesn't really affect anyone else that much. Yeah, well, I think that's something that people don't really ever talk about. Like if you go into something where you have less crew, whether it be the short you just shot or go, even going back to what we don't say, we had a very minimal crew there. And when you scale back on the amount of people you have, whether it's budgetary or just that's the way you want to do it. One thing that people don't talk about is all that stress that those other people, all those other positions would have taken off of you. That's now on you. So while, you know, the set can be very, very relaxed or seemingly relaxed inside, you can be going a thousand miles a minute because you have so much stuff to do. Yeah, that's definitely how it felt. But it's almost like you you become like a performance athlete where you're like purely thinking about executing. And it's it's interesting because all I thought about was, you know, staging where the actors are blocking camera and then making sure they had the right kind of idea of what the scene was going to be. And, you know, I did some rehearsals um, with a few moments in the script but a lot of it was just like as soon as we got there that's what we we're shooting i hadn't rehearsed because there are a lot of like small roles with different actors but you know there there were scenes without dialogue they were just kind of little action not action just with like vignettes between characters that just play out silently so it, generally they were kind of easy to understand what we we're going for with like a two minute conversation, everyone kind of was on the same page. And we never rehearsed those moments, but we kind of just played them out over and over and got as many different takes as possible. Um, But because we had, you know, very limited setups and very small amount of equipment and crew that we could kind of just go through it over and over without having to worry about like giant lighting setups and stuff, which was, you know, nice, but at the same time, they're rushing for time as well because as the sun is setting you can't really shoot anymore can you go through like say the crew number we had on what we don't say compared to your short and say you know why you chose not to have um a first ad yeah yeah like the positions you eliminated and chose not to get for the movie why did you choose not to get them you know i'd like to say it'd be really nice to say Oh, I, you know, I didn't need it or I didn't think it was necessary or something like that. But really, I just didn't know who to contact. And at that time, I was like, if I worry too much about like getting all these different crew members, I might not even make this film because I wanted to shoot the film before the summer was over because it's supposed to kind of look like it's happening during the summer. You know, I needed sunlight and it's going to get overcast in Vancouver pretty soon. So I took the liberty of just making the schedule and the call sheets myself and taking care of all that stuff because we're shooting only a few hours a day it gave me like a lot of time during the during the morning and um 
afternoon to figure it out before we shot. So, you know, the, the limited shooting schedule gave me more time. It allowed me to actually put it all together in a way that made sense. And because I'm doing it all myself, I have an eye on the whole kind of like structure of everything. And I know how it's supposed to be put together. Um, you know, I didn't have like a script supervisor, but I knew all the scenes we needed to shoot because I wrote the script. So I kind of knew when we were in each location, what parts do I need? Um, what do I need to cover? You know, all, all that kind of stuff. I think having less crew in a way, you know, gives you a little more pressure, but you no longer have an excuse of, I can't find an AD or I can't find a camera operator or, you know, I can't find like a, a gaffer or something. I, I was going to do all those things so I didn't have to rely on like finding a person, which gave me no excuse to not make the film. I think that was really why I did it. Yeah, I think that's something that people really need to take to heart as well, because I can say this as someone that really used to be this kind of person. Like, I would look for those excuses not to do something. I could say, you know, I want to make a movie, but I don't have a camera. I can't find actors. I can't find this, this and that. And to someone like that, again, I used to be a person like that. As soon as you encountered that barrier of I can't do it because of X, you kind of like, oh, thank God. I don't have to do this anymore. I can't fail. This is awesome. I just won't do it because I, I can't do it. And now I have an excuse. But if you can power through that and say, this excuse is not going to stop me and I'm going to take on all this responsibility. That's when you go out there and you make shit and hopefully you further yourself as a filmmaker or whatever you want to be. I mean, I, I think that's one way to look at it, but I honestly wouldn't recommend this way of making movies to most people. Like, I think it's really, there's a very small amount of people that, that would be able to do this kind of thing because it's incredibly stressful. It, you know, even for me, um, with all the, I guess, like technical know-how, like I'm not an expert in everything, but I have a, a good amount of experience where I can like quickly figure out what the best um, position for lighting is or what the strongest like angle would be for this particular moment um, or even just technically like how I should um, you know set up the camera on this rig or that rig to get this kind of shot or something all that is important but you're also working with actors you're you know judging the takes you're trying to choose the best blocking for the scene and all that kind of stuff um it's incredibly stressful to try to do all this and, I, <laughs> and there's a reason why there's designated people do all these things but again like i wanted to get it done i didn't want to rely on too many people that's why i chose to do it this way but even for me it was really stressful i remember there's one night we we're shooting like under a bridge it was a night scene and i had i had the light there's one light in that scene i had it up on the um street lamp there's like a dead street lamp, so I used that dead street lamp and rigged my own light onto it. Um, and had the actor stand under it, and then I had to like jump down this ramp because it was on a bridge, and then run down like this rocky hill, jump off a brick wall, take the camera, and run like twenty feet down to get this big wide shot on this bridge. The act, the actors up there, the sound guys, like just off camera up on the bridge and I have to yell action then we have to reset it and make any adjustments and stuff like that it's it's crazy and if you get something wrong if it's out of focus if 
that the camera doesn't hit record. And then there's one take in the film where I didn't hit record, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> but, you know, you, all these things are happening, and there's a protocol for a reason to make sure you get what you need properly. But, you know, you bypass all these things, but you have to make sure you can do it properly. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend this way of making a film to anyone as, like, a normal way of doing it. Um, I think it's something that's, like, almost... You, sh you should try it once, or maybe... You should try it when you've got no options left, but I don't think this is a good way to keep making movies because it's very, very stressful. You know, and I think that is a great way to lead into this section where I'm basically just going to ask you a lot of questions because if you're in Canada, like Latif and I are, right now there is a program going on through CTV where you write and make a short film of under 55 seconds using the concept of time in some way. It's basically a promotion for the Christopher Nolan movie Tenant that's going to come out. And it's a contest. You make a 55-second short about time, or sorry, using the concept of time, and the winner gets 10 grand, and they're going to show it in theaters before Tenant. So I'm sitting here with my wife, and my wife's mom tells me about this. I'm like, you know... I am so far away from every filmmaking person I know. I'm living in a really small town with no film presence whatsoever. But I want to try to do this. So I wrote a script, which it, that in itself, like trying to write a full story that comes across as a full story in under 55 seconds. Not easy. The good news is rewriting it takes no time at all because it's fucking 55 seconds, but still, it's not easy. So basically, I wrote the script and my wife and I are going to shoot it. And it's largely going to be what you were just describing. Like, she doesn't have much film experience. She helped us out on what we don't say doing, you know, like behind the scenes stuff. But in terms of the actual crew, like shooting or anything like that, she doesn't have any experience. Obviously, uh, I've directed and I've worked with you, but I've never shot anything myself. So this is me kind of jumping off the deep end but it's me doing that in a way where it's like the budget of this movie is five dollars because i need one thing and that's going to cost five dollars <laughs> so i'm not really losing anything and it's a great way to try and just see if i can do it and i've never made a short before so i figured fuck it so if there's someone out there and you know what no i'm out there and i'm asking you latif what advice do you have for me with the journey i've just outlined for you Tough. Well, I think yeah. one of the big things is to make sure your location scouting properly. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to every every location that we were going to shoot at multiple times. And I did camera tests and I mapped out like where the sun would be at what time of day and when, how I would need to shoot it. And also just trying to figure out like what exactly would be a problem when we were shooting. You know, like we shot like in a uh, empty parking lot beside a building. And I went to that location a few times and, you know, I was like, OK, this is great. And then the day after we shot, I went past that place and during the same time we shot. And there was like a car parked right where we were shooting. So if that car was there the day before, then we would have been screwed. Um, but it's right under like a tap dance studio. So I looked up what the. Uh, class hours were for the tap dance studio and I chose a day when they didn't have like a big class so the parking lot would be free and that's like super random and it's not something that 
you know, most people would think of, but I thought of it ahead of time and wanted to cover all my tracks and make sure that we wouldn't have a problem with location. Um, just because, you know, we didn't think about it ahead of time or something. So, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then a park where we're going to shoot at. It's a nice, quiet park. I went there, I've been there many times, but during the summer there's like Ultimate Frisbee tournaments. And Ultimate Frisbee is not a loud sport. There's no like bouncing balls, you're just throwing a disc through the air, but you know, the people who play Ultimate can be quite annoyingly loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is a ridiculous sport anyways. But, you know, that canceled the park out, even though I really loved location. So I found a different park with no people. And we ended up shooting there, but I found that like, you know, a week and a half before production. Um, so location scouting is a huge, crucial thing because you have to think about how it changes, how you light things and how you frame and the direction you look when you're at the location and also crew size and equipment size. You know, how much gear do you want to bring? Um, you know, is it going to work for the kind of blocking you're looking for? And, and I had to really sit and kind of just stand at the location for hours just to see if there would be any random things that I wouldn't have seen if I just like took off in like five minutes. Um, so, that, you know, th this is going to take a lot of time, but it's something that's kind of crucial. If you don't do it, then something is going to go wrong that you didn't see. So I, I kind of feel like you have to do that. I couldn't agree more. And like, I feel like this is something that we did for what we don't say to a pretty huge extent. We scouted the living shit out of that movie as best we could in terms of this short that I'm about to shoot, the good news with it location wise is there's only two locations. One of them is the bedroom of my apartment, which, you know, I live here. I can use any time of day. And the other is the parking lot that my apartment is attached to. And the good news with that is I live here and I can skip it every day. Now, the bad news is I live on the busiest street in this town, was, which it's a tourist town, so it can actually get quite bumping during the day. And right under, I live in a two-floor building. Right underneath me is a restaurant. Hmm. So these are the limitations I know I have. But on the flip side of that, this restaurant is closed every Monday and Tuesday. So there is nothing going on. And pretty much the whole town kind of closes on Monday, Tuesdays. So Monday, Tuesdays are super, super dead. I can shoot whenever I want. And the script, the entire thing takes place during the night. So I can, even after, call it between 8 and 10, the whole town kind of shuts down, especially during pandemic times. So I can go shoot whatever I want in that parking lot. I can shoot whatever I want in up in here. And then with it being night, you know, I've watched you light a bunch of stuff masterfully and I've watched a whole bunch of, you know, online classes and tutorials and shit like that. So I ordered a couple small lights. I have I borrowed my brother-in-law's camera, so we're going to shoot on that and I'm going to try my best as first time cinematographer. But based off of that location idea and kind of um, ability to shoot in terms of lighting and camera, what are your thoughts? What would you recommend for well, in terms of the apartment, like, you've got a, I'm guessing you've got, like, a big window or something in there. Um, so, I kind of, if it's during the day, I'd go with, like, a natural look and just use the window as your light source. It's going to just simplify things. Mm -hmm. You just have to kind of 
use that and and figure out when the best time is during the day to shoot that i mean if you want maximum consistency if you have like north facing windows the sun is going to move around the back of that window so it'll kind of have a very similar light pattern the whole day but if you want the sun, yeah. sun to directly come in through the window then you have to figure out what time you want that to happen and shoot in that small yeah, window that's, yeah that's another advantage that i think we have because the bedroom that we're going to shoot in um it has actually a gigantic window because the window is a door that leads to a patio uh-huh. and the way that the drapes are set up i can actually set up a light out there and i got lights that are on dimmer so i can hopefully try and mimic some moonlight and block it with the the curtain and kind of shine it in and then just use practical lights or a little bit of you know fill light wherever i need to in the room um based off that any suggestions it's a night scene you're shooting yeah yeah i mean i think because i do this all the time even in what we don't say like i use practical lights in every scene if i i remember how much you love them that's imprinted on me well it's it's about creating something that feels believable so you want to use practicals because you would have lamps inside that are on during the night anyway so i would probably use a practical as your key light in any scenario and if i wanted to have like some moonlight kicking in through the window that's totally fine but that even that has to be kind of tempered down because you know how much moonlight do you really get coming in through the windows um yeah which actually brings me to um my next question so when you have that like fake moonlight coming in through the windows like you mentioned obviously you don't want a lot which is why i got um, lights on dimmers so i can you know bring them up bring them down instead of just on off um i remember when we shot party stories you had thrown some blue gel on the light to make it appear as moonlight and i think it really worked for the look of party stories but would you rec still recommend that no actually in that scene in party stories i wasn't going for a moonlight look i had the whole place kind of decked in blue because it was kind of to really separate the space from upstairs okay. so that that whole scene is really blue and there isn't like an obvious light source in that in that room it's just kind of like emanating mm-hmm. from the windows and to me that could have been like maybe there's like a big neon sign out the window that's like blasting in like this blue ambience but I, I, yeah, oh, yeah, I definitely yeah. wasn't going for like a moonlight look because it would have been a lot, lot more toned down if that was the case. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, just like sitting around and, and observing how light works, you kind of get an idea. Like even when I just sit in my room and the I have like these Venetian blinds on my uh, window and when it gets dark right before sunset, like a blue kind of cast comes into the room. But once mm-hmm. the sun actually goes down, then an orange cast comes to my room from this, you know, the sodium vapor lamps on the street. So it's actually more light from the street lamps than it is from the uh, the moonlight. So I think it, it's almost even more realistic if you had like not a blue, but even an orange light kind of shooting in from the balcony because it could just be like the street lamp on the road or something, which is something that makes mm. sense. Even if you look at like so one example I can think of is like No Country for Old Men. Um, you know the scene where Josh Brolin is in the bedroom and the uh, Anton Chigurh is in the hallway and he's coming in. And Brolin's got all the lights in the 
and the room turned off and he's got the one lamp beside him and then he turns that off eventually he still has to be lit the practical was acting as the key but now that it's all dark in the room your main light source is actually coming from outside the window behind him and it's an orange kind of light and it's you know implying that it's the sodium vapor lamps coming in from the street there's actually no blue in that scene so it's to me that's like a great example of like what you would actually expect um, so you know that would be like a suggestion to actually do the opposite of the moonlight look and do more of the street light look hmm that's interesting I dig that I dig that quite a bit um, and then here's another one for you so one that's the the bedroom which I feel you know may I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to get to the excellent image quality of Latif but I think I'll be able to do okay the second location like I mentioned is that parking lot and pretty much the entire thing in the parking lot takes place in a car and it's a one person at the steering wheel the car's never driving but it's him kind of moving around in the car just in in the driver's seat sorry um and but he's also looking out the car and viewing what's happening across the street so how would you recommend lighting something like that like would you try and go more practically and use the light that's physically built into the actual car or would you try and actually set up a light you know normally because i've done inside car stuff before there's always a moment where i have the car the light in the car on and i think that's a very kind of default thing to do um and it depends on what the person is doing but often i find people don't even turn their lights in the car on at night unless in real life. in real life unless they're like reading something yeah i agree um so uh i think like i mean the only time i i, I remember lights in the car being on are when i'm in a cab you know like there's yeah. like a little backlight on in like the back cabin of a cab when i'm in it just because like the cab driver maybe doesn't trust you or maybe like that's just their policy um yeah totally. and we did that and what we don't say actually there's a little light in the cab that was on kind of you know illuminating that area with, which you kind of need anyways but um if the car was just parked and sitting like in a parking lot you know i try to find if there's like there's usually like the really tall light, street lights in parking lots so yep. i park park the car and this, somewhere this parking there. lot does have those yeah, so I'd, I'd plant the car, like, next to the street light. Um, and whatever color temperature that, that street light is, you could use that. Um, and if you don't have lamps that match the color temperature, you could simply even just take a, you know, a big piece of, like, bounce board or foam. And if you don't have access to that either, you just use, the, like, a white bed sheet. And you kind of drape it... Um, almost like at a 45 degree angle to the street light enough that it's catching the, the light and, and bouncing a bit back into the car and obviously the light's not going to naturally do that but when you're kicking a little bit of it back into the car you're getting a little more exposure on their faces but it's still the same you know light source the same color temperature so you will believe it um i don't think anyone's going to look at that being like oh that's fake um, I think the most important thing is to make sure you can see what's happening in the car because that's, you know, what you're focusing yeah. on. 
Um, and then, yeah, yeah, totally. And even if that's not the case, you know, put the car closer to a wall, maybe, and then have the headlights on and just whatever's bouncing off of the wall and back into the car. That's what you got. But it really depends on how you stage the scene and what it's about, I guess. Yeah, that's totally fair. So I'll give you a little bit like breakdown of this parking lot. Um, picture like a U shape mm-hmm. and all around the U are parking spaces. So they kind of don't sit exactly like going in um, 90 degrees from the street. They sit on an angle. So and within or basically inside that U, there are street lamps periodically pointing down at the car. So if you back into it, which I kind of need to do in order to shoot the scene properly, the light's going to be beaming down more more on your trunk and a little bit through the back windshield. Now, when that light does that in real life, it isn't really enough to get inside the car and light up your subject. So would you say like lower a light, you know, kind of six to eight feet behind the car, throw that, you know, diffusion up and try and get the light more in the back window and to bounce off the subject's face? Or what would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, that's one way to go about it. I guess it depends on if you want to see the actor's face or not, too. You know, if you're just watching them look at something, as long as you can catch enough detail in their eyes, that's that's kind of what you want. But I think tonally it depends on what you want. Because if you want them in silhouette or something, then then you could probably put more of the light coming in through the back through a broader diffusion source or whatever. Um and not have anything coming in from the front. Just like as little detail as possible. So you kind of just see a silhouette. So it's an interesting approach, but it really depends on what you what you want in the scene. I think there's a yeah. And if you wanted it to be a way where we like, you know, it wasn't just blown out light on the face, but you wanted to get the nuance of the facial expression, where what would you do for that? Um, yeah, I mean, you could just throw throw something outside the car, kind of shooting back towards where they're sitting. It could just be, like, a little higher up, so it isn't completely from the side. But I, th- I think, you know, looking at other movies and seeing, like, what choices they made for that is a really good way to figure it out. Obviously, you're not going to get the same quality of light because they're they're probably going to be using much bigger lighting sources but you can still look at the way it's modeled in the direction that it's coming from and use that as a good way to judge where to put the light but i think it it's really about what the story is looking for at that moment um because you know like a romantic comedy versus a dramatic thriller is going to light the same moment very differently you know there's Mm -hmm. There's a scene in, I don't know, Revolutionary Road that happens in a car that I always find very striking because of the way the light, you know, bounces off of um, Kate Winslet's back. I thought it was very interesting. But there's also a scene in Zodiac where two lovers are parked in a very dark parking lot and, um, you know, a serial killer shows up. And it's a very different lighting style than it was in Revolutionary Road but they're both very effective and they both do something that complements the story so I think it depends on what your story is asking for you as well that's fair that's fair I think we've talked enough about lighting for this little segment so what would be your next piece of advice 
Like, we got the location scouting down. I kind of know how I'm going to light it. I know where my scenes are going to be. What's next? Um, I think at that point that you need to figure out, like, shot selection. So in a way, it's kind of like a shot list. Or it could be even be a storyboard. Because um, you need you need to hit... If you're not working with any crew and you're making all the choices, there's no, oh, I'm going to play around and see what's going to happen because you're not experimenting with other people. I think when people have that mentality of, oh, we'll figure it out or, you know, we'll, I'll talk to the DP and we'll see what works best. When you're doing it yourself, you don't have that. So you have to think about it ahead of time. Um, otherwise, you'll make like an utterly awful mistake and no one is going to check you on it. The good thing about like if you're trying to kind of improvise and you have a crew is at least some of them can be like no that doesn't work or give you an opinion if you've got a bad choice you know um but if you're doing it yourself you're the only filter and if you haven't thought about it beforehand then you're gonna mess it up in some way so i think you have to kind of shot list kind of storyboard and if if not that just conceive of like what what your camera setups are so you know exactly what you need and you're not shooting stuff that's just completely useless. So thinking about that. I could not agree more with what you're saying. And I've been thinking about this. So while I've been doing um, versions of the script, and like I said, it's 55 seconds. So luckily I can get a lot of different versions out. I've probably rewritten it like six times now. Um, but as I'm doing that, since I'm shooting it in my apartment, in a car just outside my apartment, I was thinking about this two nights ago and I was like, okay, I think I know how I want to shoot this, but I don't want to wing it because I think that's going to lead to something bad. So what I did was I just took my phone and I went and did like the roughest temp shots you can think of. So, and I did the entire movie. So I've, you know, it's the whole movie starts on a guy in the front seat and I'm like, okay, how do I want to shoot this? So I just went out to the car and I pulled out my phone. I was in the back seat and I kind of, did this angle I went to the passenger seat I did that angle and like I had to imagine that someone's sitting there because it's just me but I recorded it all and then the next you know I wanted an insert of him opening the door handle so I got that from a couple different angles and I wanted an insert of the clock on the car so I got that and every way I picture it in my head as I'm writing it I just went out and I got that even if it looks like total dog shit which it all of this temp footage does it looks fucking terrible but then i just downloaded uh davinci resolve because it's free and i was like okay um another thing i know is this has to be 55 seconds that's the contest rule like 55 seconds or under so i was like i gotta make sure that this is it so i threw all this footage into davinci resolve and you know it there's no actors in it it all looks terrible but i just cut it together as if it was mm -hmm finished you know i imagined it with the actors and everything and i timed it out and then i would watch it i'd export it and i'd watch it and then i'd say that's too short that's too long and i'd recut it and recut it and recut it and recut it and it as it sits now it's at 54 seconds and the shots are like, like i mentioned god awful but they're reminiscent and strong they're going to be strong influence for what i want to actually shoot like in terms of framing and camera work and everything like that um this is actually something that even though I've just started doing it, I'm actually finding extraordinarily helpful. Um, have you ever done anything like that, or would you recommend others do something like that? Um, yeah, I, I think 
I think it it depends on on the filmmaker because some people some people are really into the idea of just kind of freestyling and figuring it out, and I, I know Werner Herzog is kind of like storyboarding is for cowards and stuff like that. But does he really? Yeah, say I that? think he's just some. He, he you know he's got very <laughs> polarizing opinions on filmmaking and stuff in general. But you know he's, he's a very great. talented filmmaker, but he's he's got like a very specific way how he approaches things, but. You know, um, for for the short I just made, like, I did, I have more camera test footage than I do actual, like, film footage. Like, the amount of camera tests I did were, were extensive. And it was just making sure that I had the right kind of frame and shots, and also just trying different lenses and seeing how it affected the, the space I was in. Because um, I, I didn't, you know, that like, I have the, this Nikon 50mm lens, which I used on which I've used on that, you know, every project. And the lens inherently looks very beautiful when you put anything in it. Um, but in a way, I'm like, I don't want to overuse this because it looks really nice. I, I want to specifically use it on, on moments that feel like they deserve it and they're part of, like, a crucial part of the story. Um, and, I sh and I chose to shoot mostly on wider lenses um, because it kind of looks a lot like how I see the world when I look around I was, I was just noticing like talking to someone the other day I was just looking at them and I could see them but I could see around them in a way that felt like you know this is kind of what my field of view is but the 50 millimeter um, when it's on the Sony it's more like a 73 uh, it's very cinematic shallow depths but it doesn't look anything like how I see things like that depth of field doesn't, I've never actually seen that with my eyes. It's a very like film specific thing. Um, so thinking about like the frame, the composition, but also like, I guess, lens choice or lens size, you know, that's all crucial because you don't want to be like guessing which lens to throw on your camera on the day. You know, you don't want to be bouncing around focal lengths too much as well. I think it's good to have a consistency in your image um, scene to scene as well when you and when you do something really different it's noticeable and it's effective it's not just kind of like jumbled in because you decided to like throw on this lens because it looked pretty or something so it's crucial to do those tests and even just laying it out like that is important you know I, I did a similar thing to what you're talking about where I just took moments and stacked them stacked them on a timeline and kind of played it out and just wanted to make sure that visually everything was kind of in the same space. Uh, and, I, you know, that's something I, I've always done, but I think there's a few sequences where I did an actual shot list and I did, like, really kind of messy storyboards, but it gave me a little more confidence going into shooting those scenes. And I didn't even bring them with me. And I, I think I totally forgot them, but the idea that I put them together in a certain way kind of gave me, like, the... The choice of like what's the most important angle for this moment and i had that kind of cemented in my head and in terms of like the actual images of, that i see in my head like when i write them i see exactly what i'm trying to get across every time i read the script because i had that images i had those images in my head while i was writing so i'm on set and shooting on the day i'm trying to get those images as close as possible I'm trying to get them out of my head and, and right in front of me so i could film it um, and I think that's kind of a important thing for you to do, especially if you're 
doing it for the first time. You have to have, kind of have a game plan. It's interesting to like sit down and try and put something together before you've actually filmed it. Because like I remember on what we don't say, I did a shot list for the entire thing, and it took me days. Like I put a lot of work into yeah. it. And then same thing as you. Once we got on set, I didn't bring it. I totally forgot about it. But I think when you do that, a certain amount of it gets ingrained in you. So you're like, oh, I remember kind of writing X, Y, and Z, even if it's on a subconscious level, you'll go and try and get those things. So, And then to take it to a whole other level, which is a lot easier for a 55-second short, but to actually go shoot test footage and try and cut it together, it's, I don't know, I'm having really great experience doing it, and I think I would like to try and do it with more projects and you know feature projects going forward. I think it would be really, really beneficial and eliminate a good chunk of the guesswork. Yeah, you know, when, when, you know, I think you need to have kind of a plan B and then just go, f go for what you're trying to do. But in case what you're trying to do fails, at least you've gotten, uh, you know, like a simplified version of what you're trying to do. And a lot of the times you'll find that in the storyboards and stuff. Um, just the most simple way to shoot something. Yeah, you know, I was going to get to that because it's, it's interesting. Um, this short, it starts on one shot for, I think, four seconds, four or five seconds. And then it gets to a part that's, I don't want to say montage you, but it's a bit quick cutty, kind of. And the more I cut together this test footage, the more I was just like, I don't like the pace of this little, you know, 10 seconds or whatever it is. It's very quick. It's very cutty. So I went back to the script and I was like, can I tell the story in a way where I'm not cutting quite as much and it's not as much like flash, 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 flash. And I was like, okay. So it's a script and I just like, what if just this one thing happened? So I went and I went to my staircase. <laughs> I shot some footage of that and then I, threw it in the editing program it's like yeah this actually kind of works and it flows a lot better than the quick flashes so i would highly recommend it to people i think it's it's been great for me so far having said that maybe i'll shoot this short and it'll be the biggest pile of shit that's ever happened <laughs> so i don't want to speak too soon but i'm having a good time with it so far yeah it's good it's like mini filmmaking it's a good way to get your feet wet before you actually do the real thing yeah totally um, so one, one other thing that I wanted to get into with you is sound. And I know like you had a sound guy on set for this, I'm spending $5 on this and it's literally just my wife and I making it. So we don't have a sound guy. And I had kind of written a script with that in mind. So one of the things I did is that there's only four lines of dialogue in the entire thing, but three of them are voiceover. So during that voiceover, I feel like the background um, ambient noise isn't really going to be as prevalent because you have the uh, vocals pretty front and center, right? And then in between the lines of VO, I picture some music. So without having a sound guy there, you know, well, I have, I'm going to try and use this mic I'm using for podcasts to get some room tone. And, you know, there's a scene where someone's running so I can try and get some footstep sounds with that but there's no actual dialogue to record so i think i can get away with that and kind of make it work in post what's your thought on that 
Yeah, I think if you kind of know exactly what you're supposed to have at the end, you can take a little more liberty with sound. Um, you know, for my short film, I have a lot of moments in high speed. Like I have, a, I've got a lot of moments that play in slow motion, and I already know that I want to put either music or sound effects under that. Um, but even though we we're doing that, I had the sound recordist on set recording any audio during those moments in case I needed them for some reason. Um, I probably won't because I still have like the original idea in my head, but I have that just in case. But if, you know, if I was really like, I've got no money and I have to cut down, then I, I probably wouldn't have brought the sound guy on all the days we're doing like high speed stuff. But um, if you know what you're going for in the end and you kind of have an idea of what's going to work, if it's either music or some sound design or just kind of simple ambient sound, then I think I think you should be okay. But you have to test it or have someone that can kind of accomplish that for you. Um, I'm shooting a lot of extra like B-roll or like wide shots or little moments with actors. Um, still moving forward and I just shot some yesterday and I didn't have a sound recorders but I, I know exactly how I'm going to put them into the film in a way that makes sense without it being like a big issue and they're all moments that don't have like dialogue in them so it's just about kind of planning ahead and, <clears throat> and kind of knowing I think like because I've edited it so much I kind of know exactly how they would go into a sequence so I don't have to worry too much about like whether we have audio recorded for them or not. I still have scratch audio, which is fine, but you know, it's just, I think that something that comes from trying it and seeing if it works. Um, all right, so we've got locations out of the way. You know, I'm not gonna recap. All the things we've already talked about are out of the way. What's your next piece of advice? Um, yeah, I think finally it's just about having some rehearsal time I don't I don't, again this is not for all films and all people but you know for my f film like I had a first time actor a non-actor um in the lead role which is kind of scary um and I think they, they were really nervous and they needed to rehearse so I took some time and did rehearsals actually, I actually had two first time actors in the film um and I took time to rehearse with both of them and I got them more comfortable I got them to a place where they could do really vulnerable and strange things that I think most people would find embarrassing. But I rehearsed with them enough and I kind of know them already um, so that they, they'd be like okay with doing these things on camera and, and being okay with like trying kind of strange stuff for me. Um, and it was really just about having them trust me and having them know that like, hey, I'm not here to like make you look like a fool or or make you look stupid in this film. Like, obviously, these are vulnerable moments, but they're supposed to play to the story and overall make the best film. So let's have some rehearsals. Let's try some stuff and get you guys comfortable. And by the end of the rehearsals, they were both excited to shoot. And they were like, hey, that was really fun. Um, and overall, you know, they, they had a good time on the shoot and, and filming. It was obviously tiring and stuff, but I think it was fulfilling for everyone. And I think that's kind of a big deal is to make sure that everyone feels prepared going into it whether they're experienced or not and I had more experienced actors working on it as well and I didn't need to rehearse with them at all they just showed up and were like completely on on the 
other marks. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And like I mentioned dozens of times by now, it's just my wife and I making this. So spoiler alert, we're going to be the ones acting. Mm -hmm. And I know that like I'm I'm not an actor. I'm okay trying it and I'm kind of excited. I think it could be fun. My wife is on the opposite side. Like when I asked her, would you be interested in doing this with me? She's like, I really don't want to, but if you want me to, then I'll do it. And I know she's very, like she doesn't want to be on on camera basically, right? So it's like, okay, knowing that, A, just for the sake of I want to be nice to her because I love her and B, you know, if she is that unenthusiastic about being on camera if i try to really go and get a performance out of her then it might not turn out that well right because i think any actor that isn't into it you're going to get a subpar performance even if they're a great actor right so it's like okay knowing this i gotta write around this so (laughs) for kate's part basically she has two things she has to do there's one scene where she smiles and there's one scene where she's dead (laughs) <laughs> so she has to play a corpse. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is good. Like, this is extremely minimal. There's no line delivery, so I, I don't have to worry about her getting to an emotional place vocally. Half of it, literally, I'm just like, don't move. You're dead. And the other half is just a smile. So it's not that bad. I can make her smile, you know? And I think, like, did you go through any anything like that in preparation for working with non-actors do you mean like having to do something to get them ready for or like writing to their to who they are and what you think they're capable of being non-actors oh you mean okay in terms of just like the even in the writing stage yeah yeah definitely i i wrote this film for the person that's playing the lead like i before i even wrote the script i pitched the idea to them and i said would you be interested in doing something like this and they were like okay you know i think i think it would be okay so i wrote the script and sent it to them and did a couple rewrites and then I, i remember just like sitting down and having them read some lines and i remember they were like super super green and it didn't quite sound right like not like what i thought it would so i you know cut down the amount of dialogue substantially and really made it exactly what i wanted it to be about so and you know any jokes any funny lines or any like little things that i thought would work i got rid of and got straight to the point so that they could just get the lines across as simply as possible um which made the script shorter and also um made the scene simpler but in a way i think it was effective because it got more out of the actors and it wasn't too much pressure so i definitely sculpted it in that sense and then the other actor who was a first-time actor i i cast them pretty close to shooting because i had a couple people in mind for the role and i i wasn't sure and this was an actor who i'd worked with actually i hadn't worked with them before but i i know them and i know they wanted to try acting so in a weird way, um, I auditioned them in a way that I don't think they knew I was auditioning them. So it was actually during the What We Don't Say screening at my studio. I invited him um, to come watch the movie. And after we went and got some food and we we're all just talking. And I brought up a topic that was kind of maybe related to the film I'm making. And I remember him just like, you know, saying what he thought and giving his opinions. 
And just through that, I thought, yeah, I think he could do it just based on a conversation where I was watching him and he didn't, he didn't know that's what I was doing. So I used that as a way to, you know, see if he would be someone that could do the film. And then I cast him in the film and he was fine. And it was really just about like figuring out if, if you think someone is capable of doing it and also tailoring it towards them as well and not expecting too much from someone who who's never done something like this before i think you really have to be realistic about that yep i'd say that's pretty sound advice man <laughs> yeah. um yeah so what else you got for me man what else should i prepare thanks other than that i think it's really just about getting enough footage so so you have the best version of it I think that's something that I, I wasn't necessarily able to do with my film just because there's so little crew that I had to do everything myself. Um, and we did have limited hours. Uh, I, I got as many wide takes of the action as I could for a lot of the uh, scenes. Um, so I, So if I needed to, I could just kind of play it out and then I remember during one scene, I, I, I was only able to get one close-up on each actor, but I got like them doing the whole scene in, in, in wides like three, four times um, in different setups. And I only got one close-up of each of them. And I covered like the end of the scenes in different shots. But I remember at the very end of the shoot, I was thinking like, you know, this is where I think being an editor pays off because I'm editing in my film editing the film as I shoot it in a way because I'm thinking about what do I need to complete the scene. So I shot like a moment from this angle, a moment from this angle, and it became very, very kind of like shooting and editing at the same time. I'm, I'm cutting it together in my head and thinking about what angle I'm, I'm going to need and want. And I ended up shooting like one shot <laughs> um, from one angle, and that's all I got. But I know that's going to work in the film. And I have that moment. As long as it's like in focus, then I'm okay. So I, I ended up doing a lot of that kind of stuff. So I think like if you have the luxury of like, there's no one but you, and you have time on your side, is to get as many takes as you can. Would you say get as many different takes or get as many different takes from as many different angles? No, I wouldn't say from as many different angles. <laughs> I think that's like where our previous note of like knowing through storyboards, like how you want to shoot it. So get the angles you think you'll use and need, but don't get like a million different angles because like you'll just make more problems for yourself in the edit. I think pick, pick the angles you know will be the strongest, but then get a lot of variations and a lot of even the same versions of those. Because who knows, the camera might be out of focus for like the first three takes. Or, you know, it, it might be like slightly angled off or your head's cut off or something. So just get as many as you can and make sure that you're safe for the edit. Um, all right, keep them coming, man. Keep them coming. What else you got? The only other thing I, th I could think of is have like some moments of transition kind of planned out. Because there's one moment in the film where there's supposed to be kind of a, a transition that just happens through a cut, but it needs like a little moment, and I forgot to get that kind of segue shot um it's just supposed to be a close-up on something and i forgot to get that so i 
either have to pick it up on a separate day or just see if I can cut into the scene naturally through the edit. But I feel like there's like one one little moment I forgot and I was like, shit. Because, um, you know, every night I shoot, I come home and kind of mess with the footage and cut little moments together. And a lot of it works really well. But there's one moment where it just doesn't naturally dovetail into the next scene the way I, I wanted it to. And I think I'm just missing that, t that micro moment that brings you to the next scene. But um, it's one of those things, even the script, it's just kind of the scene moves forward in time and I have I, I didn't really write what the transition was and I think I should have and that was like the maybe like the one lesson I learned even though it's like a short film I think I didn't like go crazy into like scene transitions and stuff just because I thought I'd figure it out when I was shooting and that was one thing that I kind of wish I'd thought about a little more before but it's only one moment in the film which is good at least have you tried a whip pan dissolve Oh, that's, that's the <laughs> name of the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to love this movie. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. All good advice. Um, what else you got? I'm basically going to keep doing this until you tell me you have no more advice, by the way. You just have to really know what you're trying to do tonally. You have to, I guess, kind of understand, like... In, in shooting it, you need to set it up in a way that's going to work in your edit. Um, I think, like, getting the tone wrong is something I see in a lot of short films or in a lot of, like, um, early short films from people is tonally it's just kind of all over the place. Like, it doesn't consistently give you the same feeling throughout the film. Either it's through a scene or through camera movement or lighting. It just kind of goes off a little bit, and I think that's that's a problem. And it does feel kind of amateur. Not in a good way, I mean like amateur in the bad way. Um, in a way that where it seems like the person making it doesn't really understand the form. Um, and I, and I, I do think like sometimes that can actually be, you know, professional cinematography totally like ruins your movie. Um, Whereas like a simpler approach might have worked well for a movie and really given the the story a believable feeling and look. Whereas if you give a simple story like a hyper cinematic look where there's just like crazy anamorphic flares and super smooth pushed camera movement and I don't know, just intense color correction. <laughs> then it might actually ruin the movie. Even if it looks really technically beautiful, it just looks like a weird commercial with like a bad story or something, you know? So I think like, even with cinematography, I, I don't think like going for the super cinematic look is even always a good idea. Sometimes simplicity is like the, the way to go. You know, one of my favorite filmmakers is Jim Jarmusch and the way his films are shot are very simple and kind of naturalistic. But they still have like a a feel a f interesting feel to them, especially like some of the earlier stuff he did with um, how do I forget this guy's name? Master of Light, Robbie Mueller, <laughs> cinematographer <laughs> Robbie Mueller, who who shot some amazing movies and he's done some really intense stuff, you know, especially with like Paris, Texas or something. But you know, some of the stuff he did with Jim Jarmusch, like Mystery Train, is 
very simple and not so loud, but it's still very interesting. So I think with cinematography, just being simple, making sure it's telling the story um, and not like overshadowing with like these crazy images is important because I think everyone's always trying to make this crazy cinematic look, but it's not, not always necessary. I think sometimes it's worse. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair. And, you know, one thing that I think we should talk about on a future episode is actually camera movement, because it's something that I think I've I think I make the excuse of I've never really had a chance to work with it just because like I've directed two things, party stories and what we don't say. And in both those things, you know, you were there, you know, this just as well as I do. We were moving so fucking fast and we had no resources. We didn't have cranes or dollies or anything like that. So the ability to do camera movement aside from static shots or kind of following the subject was pretty limited and it's something that i would like to try more of and i would actually love to pick your brain on your thoughts of camera movement in a future episode i think it's a much bigger topic than you know i wouldn't just want to throw it on the tail end of this episode but i think it's something that we could really try kind of get into the meat of yeah i, th I think that would be an interesting topic of discussion yeah. yeah, it'll be more All right, well, cinematography related, but it, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, it's cinematography, but it, it's, it's like it's such a a big part of the language that you're using to communicate your movie, right? And people that can move the camera well, like they it's just a whole other thing. It's beautiful. It's whatever they want it to be, and it's a huge tool to use and it's something that I, I know i'm looking forward to trying to use quite a bit more in my filmmaking but at the same time like i can michael bay is a great example of this that guy moves the camera so much but and to me it feels like he's just moving it to be like look i can move the camera and things look a bit more interesting it doesn't really feel like he's doing it for reasons like does that make sense I don't know. I haven't really analyzed the cinema, cinematography in Michael Bay's films, so it's hard for me to judge. But you're such a huge Michael Bay fan, Latif. I know. I just get so sucked into the story that I don't notice the filmmaking. Um. <laughs> this this Michael Bay film, it's it's speaking to my heart. It's so emotional. <laughs> this pain and gain story really has me invested. Yeah, well, it's hard, it's hard for me to like discuss. It's not even like I'm I'm not even trying to make fun of Michael Bay. I just I literally haven't seen enough of his movies to have even an, an opinion on his cinematography um, or his like camera movement choices as a director. So even if I said something, ultimately I would be the fool. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, for the next episode, let's, uh, that's a little teaser. Let's do camera movement for the next one. And before we record that one, you got to watch Transformers. And don't do the first one either. Do like the worst one. I'll watch a trailer. <laughs> I don't think I can watch the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's pretty fair. Um, but yeah, I think, um, keeping on with this, uh, these talks about having no crew and really going out there and making films by yourself, even in a more scaled down way than what we did with what we don't say. 
is something that we should keep talking about on the podcast. And like, I know I'll be done this short in a couple of weeks. I'm keeping all this test footage and all the different versions of the script. And once it's done, you know, they want you to post it publicly anyway. So I'm going to post all of it. And I think it would be interesting to see how it goes from first script to first brutal mock footage mock-up to Mm -hmm. the final thing. Um, I would uh, just going off of it, I would assume that you're pretty much just going to release the, the final project when it's done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to try to see what the best way to do that is, but yeah, I'm Mm going to try to get it out there. It's, you know, it's a, regular length short film should be around like 12 minutes i'm thinking so yeah oh sweet so yeah um i'm excited to be able to keep talking about this with the audience and also in the coming weeks i really think that we should do some deep dives into what we don't say now that it's out there and we really don't have to refrain from spoilers that much anymore yeah we'll do that yeah cool all right well until next week i am matt ralston it's latif and you've been listening to Filmcraft. It's brought to you by Acast, aka Podcast Daddy. And just want to say thanks for having us on for another week. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Talk to you guys next week. See you. Yeah.